If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. book of 2 Corinthians is probably, without a doubt, from a practical standpoint, uh, my favorite book in the Bible. And I know from time to time we all have favorite books of the Bible as you're going through it, but I don't think there's any book in the Bible that really taught me the practical aspect of ministry uh, better than this book. In fact, it's a book that <clears throat> those of you who uh, feel that at some point in your life you really want to take your spirituality to another level where you really begin to be used uh, of God in dealing with people, uh, at some point this is one book that we'll all sit down together and go through almost verse by verse uh, to really grasp the great concepts here. Um, and I know what I'm about to say is not true, but let me just tell you my feelings on it. I mean, I wish, it was, I wish I could say it was true, but it isn't. But if there's any book in the Bible that when you look at me as your pastor, I would want you to see in my life, it would be the book of 2 Corinthians. Because I think that uh, this book, without a doubt, is the handbook in the Bible on how to minister. When we started the book of Romans, I showed you how that the book of Romans was God's handbook on church <laughs> doctrine that there was no other book better in the Bible to really lay out the doctrines of the New Testament church. Then the next book we looked at, we looked at the book of 1 Corinthians. And I told you how that in the book of 1 Corinthians, you have a book that really you learn how not to do some things. Remember I told you the example of my own life, how that, you know, there was two men in my life. One really taught me the ministry what to do. The other one really taught me the ministry not, what not to do. And yet I have a tremendous amount of respect for both of them uh, simply because of the fact that uh, I've come to the point in my life that uh, a number of years ago that I can learn something from anybody. I never want to get to the point where, you know, I think that, uh, that, that my learning curve is over and that I got all the information that I need. Life is a, an ongoing process of learning and the more you learn, the more you realize how much you didn't know when you thought you knew what you knew. <laughs> so. It's one of those processes. So we saw 1 Corinthians, and we saw the bad side of things. Now here's what happens. Let me just give it to you. Here's what happens. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in the book of 1 Corinthians, it's a church that there's a bunch of spiritual babies. We talked about that. It's a church where in every chapter he deals with issues that they're messed up on and really focuses on where they're at in their relationship with God and all the things they're doing wrong. Somewhere in the process, the church at Corinth decides they want to do what's right. And that brings up another great concept, uh, really, about the Bible, because the number one issue of the Bible is restitution. He didn't write the book of 1 Corinthians just so he could blast them that they would never be worth anything. He wrote the book of 1 Corinthians blasting them so they'd get right with God so they would be worth some things, because the number one key in the New Testament church is restoration. And, of course, someplace along the line through the process, the church at Corinth decides they want to do what's right. And at this point, Paul writes them the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, here's the beauty of it. 
where chapter by chapter in 1 Corinthians, he shows them and tells us how not to build a church or how not to minister. In the book of 2 Corinthians, almost to the same degree, chapter by chapter, he writes to them on how to do it. And by doing so, chapter by chapter, 2 Corinthians becomes really one of the greatest books on the Bible to really teach you chapter by chapter that if you're going to be a minister, if you're going to, when I say minister, if you're going to work with people in the Bible, not a, not a pastor per se, certainly a pastor is included in it, but not all of you will be pastors, but all of you should come to the point in your life where you minister the Word of God to people. And you're going to find that there's no greater book in all of the Bible to define all of the aspects and to show you the character qualities that you should have. And that's why I said earlier, if there's any book that I would like at some point in my life to you look at my life and see exemplified in my life by the things that I do, the way I do it, it would be the book of 2 Corinthians. It's probably the book that I spend more time in, I think about more, and I glean out of it more than any other book in the Bible from a practical standpoint. It's a book that I understand as a pastor I have to live in daily because these are principles that I have to put in not only my own life first, but I want to be in the lives uh, or deal with the people that God has given me in that aspect of the way that the book of 2 Corinthians lays out. So we're going to go through it chapter by chapter. Uh, please excuse the personal aspect to it. It's hard for me to teach this book from just a, uh, a standoff way like I would teach Isaiah. Uh, you know, even though I love the book of Isaiah and it's a very personal book, it is not personal in the way that this book is. So I'm going to have to excuse, you know, my own personal um, bias toward this book, but uh, I'm sure that you'll learn some things from it, and I think that God will... Uh, enrich us all as we go through it. And I say all I'm going to say today, obviously there's no way I'm going to do everything in justice to this book, but I want to whet your appetite. I want you to see it because many of you, we will be coming back at some point and we will spend a lot of time in the book of 2 Corinthians. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll start chapter 1. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. I love you so much. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the book that you've given us. Help us today, Lord, to learn and to glean from this great book Help me more every day to be the kind of pastor that you find in the book of 2 Corinthians. And Lord, I know that, uh, Lord, it's, it's such a book that uh, it, just, it just changes everything that we look at when it comes to people. And help us to all to learn this today. Help me to be a good pastor to my people. Help me to learn this book more every day and apply the great principles more every day. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, in chapter 1, when you start to begin to read through this chapter, uh, I guess in, in some of these I'm going to give you a key verse in. And the key verse of chapter 1 would be verse 4. It says, Who comforted us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Chapter 1 starts out and lays out probably the most important aspect of ministry. And the most important aspect of ministry is my attitude toward the ministry or your attitude toward the ministry as you view getting into the ministry. And again, let me define for you that the ministry is people. The ministry is not, many churches teach, many people teach that the ministry is, is you know, ministering to inanimate objects, you know. And of course, uh, that's not true. 
true biblical ministry is you sitting down with somebody else or in somebody else's life teaching them the Bible. That's ministry from a Bible standpoint. I'm not saying the other things aren't important, but I'm saying we have to define it from the Bible's definition. And ministry is one-on-one -on -one with people in the Word of God. And that requires the right attitude. And chapter 1 shows me as a pastor that I become one with my people through us suffering together. And that's what he's saying in verse 4 where he says, "...who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God." That's a great passage. And that great passage simply says that as the Lord suffered, and He suffered on the cross through the agony of the cross, we as ministers suffer with our people. That together through going through whatever trial or tribulation that you go through, we all get molded into the image of Christ. Now, it doesn't take a rocket science today that look around the Christianity, knowing we're in a Laodicean church period, that you find that most pastors have ceased to be pastors. Most pastors have ceased to be pastors because most churches today have ceased to be biblical New Testament churches. The pastor has been replaced in the concept of the attitude, he's now a CEO because his church is no longer a church and his church now is a big business function. And they look at people out there as, in, as, as anything except what God wants them to look at. That's why in the average Baptist church, and I'm not talking out of school, I've been associated with it for 40 years, I know what I'm talking about. The average pastor in the average church, if you had a problem, you couldn't get in to see him if your life depended on it. And the only way you would get to see him is if you died, and then you wouldn't see him anyhow, but he might show up to preach your funeral. But you couldn't, you know why? Because of the fact that he's so busy being whatever a pastor becomes that he hasn't got time to deal with. You know what it's a lot like? It's a lot like the Dark Ages. It's like he's the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, and you're the Smurfs, now the Surf down there, you know, that are in the little feudal system. And uh, the reason why they called it the feudal system is because it was feudal to try to get to talk to the pastor. That's not true, but it just kind of fit kind of nice in there. Because they, they're busy ministering. What they're ministering about, I don't know. Because I know this, the only true ministry is the people that are sitting in these chairs before me today. And any pastor who is more busy doing anything with anybody else or anybody else around the world, no matter what he thinks his great calling is, your first calling is being one with your people. And that's the issue. That's where unity comes in. You don't build unity in a church by you being down here and me being up here and I just yell instructions down to you and don't get close to me and don't touch me and, you know, I don't want to really be part of your life. I just want your tithe and I want you to come to church so I can brag about my attendance. But when you have problems in your life, I'm going to subcontract you out to somebody else. No, it doesn't work that way. You know what? The Lord suffered on the cross. He's our example. And as the Lord suffered on the cross, as I grow in the Lord, I learn about that suffering and I understand as you grow in the Lord that you're going to go through tough times in your life. And together, it is me stepping down into your world and us working the problem together and me bearing your burden. Sometimes you'll bear mine. But in the process of that, that's where you build the character qualities of Christ in somebody's life. Now, most pastors don't want to do that because that takes time. That takes commitment. It also takes a knowledge of knowing a little bit about the Bible, which most of them don't know. So you're not going to find that in a sense. But that's why, I, 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 that's why that I always, I always look for a chance to help people with their problems. 
And I don't care what problem, because everybody has struggles. Some people have struggle in their marriages. Some people have problems in their, in their own personal lives. Some people have problems raising their kids. Some people have, they find themselves in different areas and different variations of problems. I don't care. I know this through you and I working together to solve the problem with the Word of God and me becoming one in your life and together with the Word of God and working through those things, that's where we build the unity that makes this church strong. And that's where churches have failed today because the pastor has ceased to be a pastor. He's now a CEO of a large corporation that does whatever they do, but it doesn't include the one-on-one -on -one needs of the people. And it's a, it's a sad state of affairs, but that is the Laodicean church in the book of Revelation chapter 3, and that's where we're at. So chapter 1 deals with our attitude as a minister. And that attitude is, is that I look at you uh, just like I look at myself. I'm not any better than you. I have the same struggles that you have. And when you have a problem, it has to become my problem. And we have to work the problem together through the Word of God, no matter what that problem is. And through that, the Word of God is built into your life, my life. You and I are closer together. You understand where I'm coming from. You get my heart. I get your heart. And in the process, we all get God's heart. And that's the way that it's supposed to be. Now, let me give you a great principle found in verse 10 that really goes along with the attitude of the minister when you start to deal with people's problems. And in verse 10, he says this. Uh, it says, Who delivered us from so great a death, and doth, deliver, uh, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he shall yet deliver us? Now that just sounds like a, a, con a, a kind of a, a verse there that really wouldn't have much to do with it, but that's a great concept. If you come down the preceding verses, you're going to find that Paul was talking about the great dire situation they found themselves in. There were times when they thought they were going to die. And then he comes down here in verse 10, and he gives a basic three-point outline that is what I use all the time in comforting people. For he says, first of all, in verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death? And then he says, and doth deliver. And then he says, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver. In that little verse, you find the threefold aspect of my relationship with Christ. Because Christ has delivered me from sin. You see, when I got saved, Christ delivered me from the penalty of sin. And I'm no longer on the penalty of sin, so in that respect of my relationship, He delivered me from that. And yet the Bible says that He doth deliver me. Today, as I'm standing right here before you, I have been delivered because I got saved from the power of sin. Sin doesn't have any more power over my life unless I allow it to have it. Why? Because I'm a believer, Christ is in me, and I have the Word of God. Therefore, not only did He past tense deliver me from the penalty of sin, He today delivered me from the power of sin. And then He goes on and He says, will yet deliver us. And the great news is that there's coming a day where even though right now I have been delivered from the penalty of sin, right now I have been delivered from the power of sin, bless God there's coming a day where I'm going to be delivered from the presence of sin. There ain't going to be any more sin. Now I use that great concept and I tell people all the time when they're struggling with things a great lesson that we sometimes forget. And that great lesson is I don't care what you're going through right now. Maybe you're struggling with some marriage issues. Maybe you struggle with some own personal life issues. Maybe you've got some things that have happened in your life and uh, maybe you're struggling with things. Maybe it's finances. I don't know. I really don't care to know. It doesn't matter. 
The bottom line is this, and this is what I always lay out and always give them. You know what? God did not bring you this far at this point to leave you go now. That's the thing you have to remember. Whatever you're struggling with, and I know when you get in the midst of the struggle, and I know that when you really get in, I am never going to make this message in an hour. See, I'm telling you, <laughs> this is where I live. I'm sorry. I'll tell you what, this may have to be volume one, volume two. I just got to kick it in gear here and get going because I'm getting way off here. I'm giving you stuff that, but anyway. All right, chapter 13. Let's finish this thing up today. <laughs> I always tell people this. I don't care what you're going through right now. I don't care what has happened in your life right now. If you're a believer, God did not bring you this far to leave you now. And it's so easy when you get into the midst of everything that you lose sight of that because you're dealing with the burden. You see, it's my job to step into your world, put my arms around you, and to say, you know what, it's okay. God didn't bring you this far to leave you now. And you know what? You're not going to have to go in from this point on by yourself because not only is the Lord going to go with you, who's really important one, but I'm going to go with you too. And we'll walk through this thing one step at a time, one day at a time, and we'll fix everything that has to be fixed because I'm telling you, God delivered you past tense from the penalty of sin. Today He's going to deliver you. He's delivered you from the power of sin, and there's coming a time when He will deliver you and me from the presence of sin that we won't have to deal with this. And when you understand that great process, it makes a great promise in your life. Well, then we've got chapter 2. And chapter 2 deals with my forgiving spirit as a minister, or your forgiving spirit as, the minister, as a minister. You know what? God, the greatest thing about God that is hard to comprehend by some people is God's ability not only to forgive, but God's ability to forget. And uh, a lot of times God's people can't forget. They can try to forgive somebody, but they can't forget what that person did. And of course, I got some news for you. If you can forgive biblically, you can forget. But if you never learn to forgive biblically, you can forget it. Because if you can't get to that point where not only you can forgive, that you can forget, then uh, you're never going to come to the place because the devil is always going to have the advantage in your life unless you can come to the point, biblically, where you can not only forgive somebody, but you can actually forget what they did. Now, you know how God forgets what he, we've done against Him? And by the way, you know, a lot of people have a tough time with losing their salvation, you know, and they think that when they get to heaven because of all the terrible things that they've done in the past, and when they get there, God's just not going to let them into heaven. Well, I've got some news for you. Here's how the first day in heaven's going to be after the rapture of the church for a lot of God's people. They're going to run up. They're going to be, everybody's running around and screaming because we're in heaven, you know, and at that time. And, all you, and a lot of people are going to be so amazed because all they find up there are King James Bibles. They're going to have a tough time with that for a while, you know. And, and suddenly you're, you're going to see people over here standing kind of off and they're kind of shaking hands and hallelujah and everything. They're kind of waiting for the Lord to get alone. And then they're going to kind of move over that thing, you know. And they're going to walk up there, and they're going to, and you're going to, and the Lord's going to say, "Well, hi, Bob. How are you doing?" I'm going to say, "Well, Lord, I'm I'm glad to be home to heaven. It's really good. But can I talk to you for just a second? Well, sure. What do you need? We got all eternity. What do you want to talk about?" And he said, "Well, he said, you know, when I was back here on earth, he said, I just want to tell you, I, and I know you know this, but I'm sorry about that thing that happened back there, you know, and and I and I and I did that, and I just I'm just really sorry." Lord's going to look down and he said, "You did that." 
He said, yeah, I did. And then there was a time, you know, when we were driving down the freeway and that guy cut me off. You know, I know I shouldn't have done that, but I, you know, and, I, and I've done some terrible things, you know. When I say I did some terrible things, you know, I didn't treat my family right and all that. And I just, and I'm sure, and God said, you did all those things? And you're going to, and he's going to say, you're going to say, yeah, I did. And the Lord's going to look up and he's going to say, you know what? Huh, I'd forgotten all that. You know why? Because he has. You know how he forgets? He forgets it in the person of Christ. He sees every bad thing we did exalved in Christ and he forgets it. Does he really forget it? How can God who knows everything forget? He doesn't really forget. He just chooses not to remember anymore because it's in Christ. You know what? Everybody in this room can get to that point in your life if you get Christ in your life to that degree. I'm telling you. Now I'm going to give you two of the greatest verses, three of the greatest verses in the Bible on, 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 on the Christian relationship and your walk. Look at verse 14. Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? Now here's a verse that tells you that as a child of God, there's something that you can always have triumph in. And the triumph in is understanding this. And this is why you can learn to forgive and forget. Because you realize that once you get saved, first of all, whatever somebody does to you or against you, they're really not doing to you or against you. They're doing it to the Lord. So it really isn't your fight. You're just representing them. Sometimes we take things too personal. And this verse says that it always causes us to triumph. And the reason it is, is because you have the ability not only to forgive somebody, but as you build the relationship with Christ the way that it should be, in Christ you realize that you can forget it because it really doesn't make any difference. The people who get hung up on little things that happen in life that they can't forget, or whatever the case may be, are people who are letting the devil use them to a great disadvantage. There isn't anything that anybody ever has done, will do, or could do to me that I couldn't drop it in a heartbeat and forgive them and then go out and eat with them like nothing ever happened. You know why? Because, hey, man, I'm going home to heaven. It doesn't make one bit of thing in my life, brother. I, I can forgive you because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, that I'm to forgive you like Christ forgave me. And that's the key. And I can talk about somebody over here and say, well, I don't like this and I don't like that and I'm not going to forgive them. But I'll tell you something. You and I didn't look too hot first time God looked on us and He forgave us anyhow. Not only did He forgive us, but He forgot it. And in the person of Christ, you can come to the place where you can forgive and you exalt whatever was done and you forget it. Do you ever forget it? No, you don't ever forget it. But it just doesn't make any difference anymore comparing to what all God has given you. And that's the key. When you compare one little thing that you're holding against in your life, or whatever it is, versus over the great things that God has done in your life, how can it compare? You know why? Because it goes back to what I said. He had delivered me, He will deliver me, and He will yet deliver me. I'll give you a great verse, Psalm 119, verse 165. I have people come up to me, well, not, any, not, for, not for a while, but I've had people I've been pastoring say, well, you know what, I'm really offended at this. Or I heard somebody say, well, so-and-so preached, and that really offended me. And I always give them this verse. I had a lady come up one time, and she said, I want you to know what you preached really offended me. 
And I, she, she said, I need to talk to you about it. I said, fine, I'll be glad to talk to you. But before we talk, can I give you a verse? And she said, sure. And I said, I want to give you Psalm 119, verse 165. It says, great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Now, what's your problem? You see, when you love that book and that book's in your life, what is anybody going to do to offend you compared to what God's giving you in that book? God's people are too thin-skinned. They don't have a relationship with the Word of God where you can't say anything to me that's going to upset me and let me lose what that book has. You know why? Because I don't get offended. You can preach anything you want to preach. You can say whatever you want to say about me. It doesn't make any difference. The bottom line is I know where I'm at with a book. I know where I'm at with God. And your opinion doesn't matter to me one way or the other in the sense of my relationship with God. I ain't going to change it. And I always triumph. A child of God should always triumph. We ought to always triumph because we understand that when we speak about Christ, when we talk about Christ, and somebody accepts it or somebody rejects it, it really doesn't make any difference because the Bible says when we speak Christ, it becomes a sweet savor in the nostrils of God, and God is pleased. And the bottom line in this life called the Christian life is this, pleasing God. That's what it's all about. Do your best to exalt Christ. Just in the Old Testament as they took that sacrifice and they burnt that sacrifice, and the Bible says the smoke of that offering of that innocent sacrifice went up and God smelled that savor of that sacrifice and God was appeased of His anger because something innocent died for something that was sinful. When Christ died on the cross as our Lamb of God, which taketh away to the sin of the world, it was that savor that He smelled of His death, of His Son on the cross, that appeased His anger and gave grace to all men through salvation of His Son. And you know what? When you understand that when you preach Christ and somebody accepts it or somebody rejects it. I know pastors right now that when they get up and they preach and if a hundred people don't come forward, they felt like they failed. You know why? <clears throat> because they've gained their whole ministry or maybe their whole lives on results. I learned very young in the ministry that the results are not my job. I am not interested in the results. That's God's job. I'm interested in the truth. I'll take care of my job. God takes care of His job. My job is to put out the truth. God's job is to take care of the results. And when you understand that, you don't get result-orientated, and that's not what drives you, and you realize that you can forgive anybody, anytime, anywhere because of the fact that when you lift up Christ and what you've got in the Word of God overrides everything that anybody could ever say, do about you, and you have more understanding and wisdom than they do, and you realize why they are the way they are. And that's just one of the greatest concepts anywhere in the Bible. All right, chapter 3. Chapter 3 deals with the reality of my ministry. And the reality of the ministry is this. There's going to be some people who are not going to like you. And you better mark that down right off the bat. When Jesus showed up, he was the most perfect man that ever lived, never did anything anybody to hurt anybody, never lied, never cheated, never did this, never did that, and half the people loved him and the other half hated him. Well, you put you and me in the same boat who, aren't, who are sinful, and to do stupid things that we do do, and all the things that, uh, you know, you try to do right, and, uh, and the bottom line is you just got to face it. There's some people, when you start to minister the Word of God, who just aren't going to like you. And uh, here in chapter 3, that's exactly what they're doing. It says in three one, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, 
or letters of accommodation from you. Now, here's the issue, and this is hard to believe, I know, but there are actually people in this church that don't want to get the, don't want the church to turn around. And Paul's writing this letter, and these people are actually questioning who Paul, by what authority Paul is doing it. They are questioning his ability to do it, and some of them even a question of his motive. And what you've got down here is that Paul, who is the apostle of the Gentiles, who in our day and age wrote three-quarters of the New Testament, there is no way that we could ever come to the point where we could ever question who Paul was. Here, in the middle of his day with his contemporaries, there are men, women, whoever, who are questioning who he is, should he really be saying what he's saying because they don't want to do what's right. And you've got to realize that the reality of ministry is it would be nice in a perfect world for everybody to love God, for everybody to love uh, when you get up and preach and to love the things that you say. But in a real world, the reality of life, that's not going to happen. Now, I'll tell you this, as a child of God, and, and you older Christians know what I'm talking about, you come to a place in your life where when you come to church and you get a good thrashing from the Word of God, it feels good. I mean, you because you, it, you, it gets you clean and you enjoy it. You learn to that point, as the Bible says, that, uh, you know, the he that loveth a honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet. It's all good. But God's people who come to the point where they never got to that place, why, uh, all they got to hear is one thing that's negative, and man, they're off, and uh, it goes from there. So if you're ever going to get into the ministry and you're going to work with people, you're going to realize that not everybody's going to make it. There's going to be some people. There's going to be some people who just do not appreciate a Bible-based ministry. I've come to the conclusion that any church, I know the church has a lot of fun social things that it does. It has a lot of family things that it does, and it's geared toward all of those things, and those all are important. But the bottom line, rock, rock bedrock concept of the church is this church exists for really one reason. That is to expose people to the truth. And then people react to that truth one way or the other. That's all that really the basic job of this church is. Every Sunday morning, every Thursday night, every time we get together, we open the book, we lay out something called truth. And people that are looking for the truth will say, that's what I've been looking for. People that don't want the truth will say, that's not what I'm looking for. And now that takes different forms. It may take the form of somebody getting upset and mad because you said something that stepped on their pet peeve, you know, or whatever it is in her life, but that's just the way that it goes. You realize and understand, and you be a big boy about it, that when you take on a ministry, not everybody's going to be happy with you, and that's just the way that it is. Some people will love you, some people will hate you, and then you'll find the group in the middle that just love to hate you, but that's the way it works, and that's how chapter 3 lays itself out. Then we come to chapter 4, and chapter 4 defines my ministry. He says in 4.1, great verse, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation, here it comes, of the truth, you see, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. All right? Now, there's five things that the ministry, that it, the ministry is. The first two are all go together, and that is you renounce the hidden things of dishonesty and you don't walk in craftiness. That means that your motive is pure and you've got no hidden agenda. You're not playing politics with anybody. You renounce the hidden things of dishonesty. You're honest about it. You don't walk in craftiness. Everything is open. No hidden agendas. 
That means that anybody can come to you at any time, ask you any question you want, they want to ask you about your character, what you teach, what you believe, whatever the case, and you've got nothing to hide. You lay it out. You renounce the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness. Then the next thing is, nor handling the Word of God deceitfully. You see, that's teaching bad doctrine. That's not teaching and laying out the Word of God the way that it's supposed to be. Now the last two go together, and that is the manifestation of truth and commending ourselves to every man's conscience. I told you, the bottom line of the church is to manifestate truth. And then your manifestation of truth, you commend yourself to every man's conscience. You know what that means? That simply means what you see is what you get. You're transparent. You live what you preach. And you don't have a set of standards for your people and then another set of standards for yourself. And that's why I told you that in this church, when I get up and preach, my job is obviously to keep you accountable. Your job is to keep me accountable. And we have that ability and that right to each other because that's what it has to be. Most churches, the pastor wants to hold you accountable, but he wants nobody holding him accountable. And that is never going to work. We have to have an accountability factor in the fact that what is good for you is good for me and me for you because we're all in the same together. It goes back to chapter 1, our attitude that we suffer together. So chapter 4 is an incredible chapter that defines the ministry. And by the way, that will be the definitive verse uh, or passage in the Bible on defining the ministry in case, uh, in case you're keeping record of those things. Uh, so that's chapter 4. Chapter 5, he talks about the perspective of my ministry. And the perspective is the judgment seat of Christ. And we talked about this in great depth. We went through the judgment seat of Christ Thursday night, laying out all the different aspects of it when we defined this concept of it. And we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, or excuse me, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3, this is where you get the concept of somebody showing up at the judgment seat of Christ naked. Chapter 5, verse 11 is where he talks about the judgment seat of Christ for the child of God is going to be the terror of the Lord. And then he says in chapter 5, verse 10, that we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. When you run this, cross-reverence it back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which is a definitive passage on the judgment seat of Christ, you see there that there are people who lose their rewards. You go to Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, you find there are people who lose their garments. And then you go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, you find out there's some people who lose their crowns. And uh, it all comes down through there. Now, I don't know, but if you study this chapter, chapter 5, you'll find that there's uh, a number of things here that uh, will uh, get you uh, in trouble at the judgment seat of Christ. And the first one is a person who loses their emphasis. That'd be your purpose. Your purpose, once God saves you, is to build your temple and then take your temple to the world. Simple as that. Second thing is wrong doctrine. The Bible says a little leaven, leaven the whole lump. Third thing is a wrong attitude. You get caught up in loving things of this world when the Bible says you ought to be looking and I ought to be looking, the love is appearing of His coming. Wrong goals. We get saved and then we want to continue on with our plan instead of canceling our plans and finding out what God's plan is. Wrong perspective. When you get saved, it all changes. Verse 17 says, in a great verse, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And you see, that verse tells you that when you get saved, some things changes. Now, I don't know if you know what changed about man when you got saved, when you became a new creature, but here it is. The first thing that changed about man when he got saved and became a new creature, or woman, man in a general sense, is his purpose of man. 
When you got saved, the purpose of man changes. Now you're no longer doing your own thing. You're going to do what God's thing is. The second thing was the passion of man. I see this in some of you. I see it in a lot of you. I see a lot of you guys that like to do things before you got saved, got into the Word of God, you know. You could live for those fishing trips, those hunting trips. You used to live for them golf outings and all those things. Now those things are somewhat important to you. But uh, five years ago in your life, if you had a chance to go into church to hear the Bible taught or go and fishing, you'd be fishing. Today, if you got the choice, you'll be hearing the Bible. You know why? Your passion changed. Your passion changed. I like to do a lot of things in life. I really do. I'm kind of an all-around guy. I don't do much well, but I like to do it. And, uh, but I'll tell you what, there ain't nothing I like to do in this life better than sit down and talk to somebody about the Word of God or spending time in the Bible or hear good preaching. I can't think of anything in this life that I'd rather do than that because uh, my, my passion changed, see? Then the, pace, the patience of man changes. In other words, now he's, uh, he understands that he's on God's timetable and not his. And the perspective of man changes. Everything has changed. Once you become a new creature in Christ Jesus, all things are passed away. The inner man changes. The outer man changes. And you know why? Because the day you got saved, the end of man changed. You're not going to hell anymore. Now you're going to heaven. New lifestyle, new place in eternity. Everything is new. And that's my personal perspective of the ministry. I've got to view everything I do as a minister in light of the fact that someday I'm going to give an account of the judgment seat of Christ. And it's going to have to do with my emphasis, my doctrine, my attitude, my goals, my perspective. It's going to have to do with me understanding that when I got saved and became a new creature, my purpose changed, my passion changed, my patience changed, my perspective changed, the inner man changed, the outer man changed, and the end of man got changed. And that's what we have to focus on. And boy, what a great chapter that is. Then in chapter 6, in chapter 6, we have the fellowship of the minister. And truly today, the great unknown concept of the 20 and 21st century Christian, pastor and Christian, is the concept of fellowship. We talk about fellowship always being a good thing. When I say good thing, I mean, you know, coming over to somebody's house, having a little cookout, having some fellowship, going to some, and we all go down to the mission, you know, and do our job down there. And then uh, we all go to wherever we go and have a little bite to eat and have a little fellowship. And that's, that's good time. And I'm not saying that's not fellowship. And I'm certainly not saying those aren't important. All the time we can spend together is important. All I'm saying is that is not the biblical concept of fellowship. You want a definitive verse for fellowship in your Bible? It's 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, which simply says this. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Now, the light is the Word of God. If we walk in the light, come on, Daryl, come on down here and sit down. I'm getting the best part yet. I'm going to whack you. Come on down through here. <laughs> Daryl's my buddy. Get on in here. Not to stand in the back saying, where am I going to sit? Come up here and sit next to me, right up here. <laughs> I love you, buddy. So when you start to look at this thing and understand it, and you put this whole concept together, I'm completely, totally lost. Now, where was I? Oh, here, chapter 6, Fellowship of the Ministry. <laughs> If we walk in the light, light's the Word of God. As He is in the light, we have fellowship. Then there is no fellowship outside of the Word of God. 
Now, I'm not even going to get into the fact that if you got the wrong light. Tell me you got a flashlight, but you got no batteries in it. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Then true biblical fellowship is based on the fact that we are in the Word of God. Remember I told you in chapter 1, the attitude of the minister or the Christian is suffering. Being in fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. And of course, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 and 13, a great verse here, talks about how that Christ suffered without the gate, how you and I as Christians are to bear His reproach and to suffer with Him in bearing that reproach. This is what Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 says, when he says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conform unto his death. You see, we don't want to be in fellowship with bad things today. You know why we don't want to be in fellowship with bad things today? Because we as Christians look at bad things and good things when the way God looks at it, there's no bad things, there are only good things. The only bad things in our lives are the dumb things you and I do. The bad things that God brings in our lives are good things. I heard a message one time where it said, what... What to do when bad things happen to good people. It was a book. What you should do as a child of God when bad things happen to good people. And I thought to myself when I saw that book, now there's a man that doesn't even understand the principles of the Bible. But my Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God. There is never a bad thing that happens to a Christian unless it's something he does stupid himself. God doesn't bring bad things into your life. It's how you perceive it. But you see, when you start reading a book about that, you know the greatest thing you get about that book? You get the idea that God does bad things to you. No, God doesn't do bad things to you. But you see, we don't want suffering in our lives today. We want to get all the victory. We want all the good things. We want all. The, we don't want any suffering. And of course, it's the suffering of God and you're in fellowship with that that makes you conformable unto His death that gives you the right perspective, the right passion, and everything else that we talked about to bring you where God wants you to be. Without that, that's why, very frankly, that's why the Laodicean church is the worst church all down through the history of the seven churches. You know why? It's the only church that was never persecuted for what it believed and had a nice, soft, easy route all the way. No suffering for them. They don't want any suffering. They want nice big buildings. They want billions of dollars worth of property. They want billions of dollars in the bank so they don't have to trust God. And they want all this in the name of Christianity. And getting all of that made them the worst amalgamated mess you could ever see in your life because they left out the number one key ingredient in you and our spiritual growth. That is being in fellowship with His sufferings. Going through what you got to go through when God brings it in your life. You know why? Because he hath delivered me, he will deliver me, and he yet shall deliver me. See where it keeps going back to those things? Great concept. Great concept. Then chapter 7. The promise to the minister. 7.1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Psalm 119, verse 11. My key verse. Thy word have I hidden mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. The promise of the ministers is what, in the word of God, the word of God, the promise is in that book God gives to you. And those promises, one, keep you clean, because those biblical principles will give you God's opinion on what to do and what not to do. And it will perfect you, because it will show you God's mindset. And between those two concepts, that's the best thing that the word of God and the promises do for you. 
You know, every woman, I've never met a woman in my life, and it may not be exactly like I'm going to explain it, but it's something like this. Every woman I ever met in my life, from my, my mom, my sister, you know, my girls, my wife, people that I've known, when you go into their house, they invite you over. If they give you a tour of the house and they take you into the master bedroom, one of the things you're going to see on the, on, the, um, on the dresser there is a little jewelry box. And, and maybe it's not a little jewelry box in the sense that you open it up and you close it and Cinderella dances around on top of it, you know, like a little thing, but it'll be some kind of little compartment box there. And the reason why you do that is twofold. One, for my illustration. Two, when they break into your house, they know right where to go to grab all your valuables in one shot. <laughs> Can I tell you? But you know what you do there? Before you go to bed or before whatever you do you got to do, you come back from going out someplace, you take off your diamonds, you take off your ring, you take off the watch, you take off whatever, and you put them in that little jewelry box. And if somebody, your kids make something, I've seen it where women have got little, little things that they're, they got for their, you know, kid's birthday. They had all the little names on it. Sometimes grandmas get the things, you know, with all the little grandkids on them. And so you don't want to lose it. You don't just put it on the dresser. You don't just do like men do and take the watch off when you're in a shower and throw it up in the air and hope it'll be up there. You can catch it when you come out. It, and then you yell at your wife because where's my watch? You know how that goes. No, no, you have a little box where you put all of those things that are absolutely special to you or some little place where you put it, some little bag, some little box, which we commonly call a jewelry box. And you know what? That's exactly what a child of God had to do. Your heart is your jewelry box. And when God gives you the precious promises and principles, just like your husband or your kids or your boyfriend or whatever, gives you something special that you want to tuck away that you don't lose, so when you take it off, you put it someplace where you'll know it's safe, that's what you need to do with those promises. Those promises keep you clean. The biblical principles keep you clean. That's why he says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. That's why he said, Having these, therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The cleansing and the perfecting, all based on the promise that you get from God and what you do with them and where you put them. Then we come to chapter 8 and 9. These two chapters go together. Chapter 8 and 9 deal with the character of the ministry. Character of the minister. And of course, the character of the minister is giving. Most pastors teach and want you to believe that uh, churches exist so you can do something for them. And that's just not true. First and foremost, the pastor exists so he can do something for you. Teach you the Word of God. Minister to you. Be there when you're going through a tough time. Help you through whatever uh, you need to do. Wherever you're at. Get you to the place where you can stand on your own two feet so you can do the same thing for somebody else. The key to ministry, my ministry anyhow, is to understand the nature of God through studying the Word of God. And when I understand the nature and the character of God, I realize, as we talked about last week, the character of God is giving. And that makes me more like His nature, and so I want to give to others. You know what? I've watched a lot of you do this, and I don't miss much. I watch what people do and I listen to what people say. You learn a lot about where people are at just by keeping your mouth shut and watching and listening. And I watch you guys do this. I watch some of you people, it'll be somebody that gets saved and there's somebody to start coming to church and uh, all of a sudden, uh, you know, they'll start coming and they really get kind of plugged in and next thing I know, bang, there they got a, a brand new Bible. 
and I'll walk over to them and I'll say, well, that's really nice. Would you, where'd you get that at? And they say, oh, so-and-so got it for me, gave it to me. You see, that's what I'm talking about. Not just in that sense, but that's a great example. Understanding. There ain't no greater gift you can give somebody than to give them a copy of the Word of God. I'm telling you. You talk about something that's going to be eternal, that's something that it ain't no greater gift anywhere in the world than giving somebody a copy of the Word of God. And when you give them something that is something that they are going to use the rest of their life, my goodness. But that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the aspect of, of the character of God is giving. And you looking at what you can give. You know, and you find that all the way down through here. Because in chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, you got the story. We talked about this last week, how that they were taking up an offering for the saints down at Jerusalem who were having a struggle. And when you start talking about chapter 8 and 9, everybody immediately goes to the fact that you're going to talk about money. But you know what? When you come down through this thing here, and he starts talking about the story of the saints in Jerusalem, and they took up an offering because they needed the money, he says down here in verse 5, long before he talks about money, he says they gave of their own selves first. He says in verse 3, they were willing to give their own selves. In other words, the giving of money was secondary. It started a long time ago when they realized that the character of every child of God and certainly every minister is not to see what somebody can give you, but what you can give them. Looking for an opportunity to administer and encourage and edify somebody else by what you can give them. By what you can give them. By what you can give them. That's what I'm talking about. Chapter 9, verse 7 says, On the aspect... Every man according as he purpose in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or out of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Only two places in the Bible that you find where some man purposes in his heart to do something. One of them's here, the other one you can go look it up. Both of them are dealing with character, God's character. Because you know what? God's character is giving. We talked to you last week. God's heartbeat is truth. God's heart is truth. But God's character is giving. And when you get that aspect of giving into your life, then and that character in your life, and you become a minister, you realize that you exist as a minister to give to people. You don't ever ask anything back. You're not given to get. You give because that's what God did, and that aspect of character is in your life that you want to edify in somebody else and help them grow so you do for them maybe what they could not do for themselves at that time. And by doing that, you give of your own self first. You give of your own self-birth. Let me tell you something. 99% of being a good Christian is nothing more than you being willing to give of yourself first. If you come to the point that you're willing to give of yourself first for whatever, the rest of it is academics. I can teach you the Bible. I can teach you principles of ministry. I can teach you this, that. What I can't teach you is the aspect of being willing to give of yourself first. That comes based on your character and relationship with God. Either it's your own selfish thing about you, or it's the nature of Christ, which is giving. Chapter 10, the mind of the minister. And of course, he says here, and boy, what a great passage this is. He says in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to avenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. 
verse pretty much says it itself. The battle today that we face is the battle for your mind. That's what it is. You got God's mind, you got the devil's mind in this world, just like you got God's Bible and you got the devil's Bible. That's why he says in verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Everything in this world that will exalt itself, notice, not against God, not the knowledge about God, but the knowledge of God. In other words, God has given you a book that has His knowledge in it. The Bible calls it the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul told him in the Philippian church of 2.15 that we're to let this mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. And God has given you the knowledge of God in a book. And everything in this world goes against that. And that's why we as believers, the mind of the minister, is to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. You know what? I get them all the time in the mail. I'll get five a week of seminars <coughs> that people are having to help me go to to be a better minister. I get them. Color brochures, man, that look great. Must have cost them $30,000 to do these four multiplex color brochures that's got all these great motivator speakers in it. I get them. I get little packets all the time that's got little pens in it that says, you really want to build a church? Give a pen away with your name, church's name on it. People will flock to get these pens. I get everything in the world. I got people call me on the phone saying, we've just designed, Pastor, the greatest teaching that you've ever will ever hear on how to build a church. Because we know that preachers are struggling today. We know the world is out there. And we know that it's hard to build a church. And we've got this package together that we put together. And let us send it to you free. You keep it. You listen to it. And if you like it, then we'll bill you 29 5000 payments of $100 apiece. You know why those guys make millions and millions and millions of dollars? I'll tell you why. Because God's men today have taken the most simplistic book that God ever gave this world to give you everything you need to know about building the church and replaced it with that kind of stuff. That's the problem. That's the problem. As far as I'm concerned, I read other books, but I teach out of one book. I read other material. I preach one book. I believe that there's a lot of good stuff out there to read, but when I come into this pulpit, you don't see me a stack of so-and-sos over here. You don't start me starting out my sermons by saying, well, I read a great book this week. They really got it. No, I did read a great book this week. It's this one. And that's all you need. I'm not saying you can't add some other stuff to it, but you know what? This is the book. When we come to you know, most churches today, I, I look like they look like very fancy, you know, dining rooms with great buffets with all the great food. You know, you're out there and you don't like this coming down the line. Well, I don't like fish, so I'll have some chicken. Well, I don't like chicken and I don't like fish. Oh, they got this. I'll have this. And they come over here and say, well, I don't like any of this stuff. And, and I'll have some of this. And everybody gets to pick what they want. And the most finicky people in the world eat in those places. You know what? This is an old City Union Mission soup kitchen, kitchen here. You're all a bunch of bums, and we just got one thing we put out, and everybody has to eat it. We don't cater to your needs other than what this book does. We don't slice it up for you. If it's, if it's bitter, it's bitter. If it tastes like sliced sirloin, it tastes like sliced sirloin. But you know what? You serve one thing when you get up to preach, and that is the living word of the living God and it'll take care of every man's problem that he's got. That's what's wrong with the world today. Chapter 11 goes right along with this, where chapter 10 talks about the mind of the minister. 
and talks about the battle for your mind that you're struggling against. Chapter 11 talks about the wisdom and the understanding of the minister. And what I'm about to give you in this chapter is probably the greatest chapter or the greatest passage in all the Bible that tells you what's wrong with the church today. He says in 4.1, excuse me, in 11.1, Would to God you would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear least by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, he starts this chapter out by laying this story out about Adam and Eve. And nowhere in the Bible can I find a better story that illustrates, a passage that illustrates, how the devil has and will attack the body of Christ, the church. The example that he uses is Adam and Eve, which takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and 4. We're not going back there. I'll tell you the story. But here's what you got. When you study the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 in those places, you're going to study it from the aspect that you're going to find that Adam, and this is what he's talking about here. He's proving what I'm saying to you now by using this as an illustration. Adam is a type of Christ. Eve is a type of the church. And he's saying just as the devil beguiled Eve, type of the church, the devil is going to beguile the church, picture Eve. Now, I always thought it was an interesting thing. You know that the devil came to Eve back there in Genesis 3 when Adam wasn't home? You know why? It's a picture of the church age. The Christ isn't home right now. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. So the attack you got in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam is gone on Eve is a picture of the attack of the devil on the church while Christ is up in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. It's easy. It's easy. You're going to find down in chapter 3 that... Uh, when the devil showed up to Eve, who's a type of the church, Adam, a type of Christ, is off somewhere. When he shows up down there, that Eve had already been given exactly what, the, what God told him. You're going to find that God gave them very explicit instructions in chapter 3 about what to do and what not to do. And when the devil shows up in chapter 3, the devil shows up and his attack on Eve is simply to tell Eve, God just revised what he told you, and now he told me something else. And he opens up his statement by saying, Yea, hath God said, then he changes what God said. And you're going to find here in this passage that he talks about as the serpent beguiled Eve. You find two beguilings in the Bible. One of them's in the Old Testament. That's a literal beguiling. That'll be the nation of Israel in Numbers 25, second uh, uh, Colossians chapter 2 and you're going to find a spiritual beguiling that's the church Eve gets beguiled Israel gets beguiled physically you can go back to Numbers chapter 25 and lay it out Genesis chapter 3 the church gets beguiled spiritually alright let's see what this beguiling has to do with simply stated the church has been beguiled let's look what he says verse 3 but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, here's the danger, here's what the devil's going to do, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, you see that thing? God wrote a Bible that is simplistic. Man wants to make it harder. Now, I know this is an issue with a lot of people, but you know why I know the, one of the ways I know the King James Bible is the Word of God? The world told me it was. Yeah, the world. The world told me it was. Say, what are you talking about? The world told me 
that the King James Bible is the absolute Word of God. What are you saying? If you would go, and a number of years they did this, in the public school system, I don't know what they're using now, but there was a time when they used what they call the Kincaid formula. The Kincaid formula was not a Christian thing. It was a formula put together by educators that designed to see how easy books was read to put those books in different grade categories. Someplace along the line, somebody took the Kincaid formula and applied it to the Bible. And they found out that the King James Bible was written on a fifth grade level. The 95% of the words in the King James Bible were two-syllable words outside the names and places. Then they run it up against the ASV and found the ASV was a sixth grade language. Then they run it up against the New American Standard and the Good News for Modern Man and found out it was seventh grade. And then they run it up to the classical NIV and found the NIV is written in an eighth grade language. You see what man does? He takes what God lays out simple and then he moves it into the complexity. You want to go off to be a pastor today? What they do is they take something that is so simple and make it so complicated that the average kid could never get it. They tell you you got to spend the rest of your life studying Greek and Hebrew, which are two of the hardest languages to learn in all of the world, before you can hardly have a relationship with God. And the reason why they do that is because once you learn it, you can go back to your people and tell them how stupid they are and how smart you are because they don't know what you do. So I'll tell you what the Bible means. My position is, I'm as dumb as you are, and you're probably smarter than I am, and I'm telling you, God wrote you a book in a simplistic form that you can have every relationship with God that any man on this planet has, if you want it. Well, has the Bible's own dictionary. Bible's its own systematic theology. Throw Schaefer's out the window. Bible's its own commentary. Matthew Henry, out the window. Bible's its own reference book. Bible's its own history book. I'm telling you, that Bible has in it, within it, everything you need. You don't need to go to the back of Strong Concordant to find your Greek words. You don't need the Hebrew or Greek language. You don't need a, a, a Webster's Dictionary, though they help you sometimes. But the bottom line is, it all comes back to this Bible is everything inclusive into itself. Now, I've observed this. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, never claimed to be, but my only claim to fame, and I've said this before, I am the fastest one in the slow class. I've observed this. I learned this a long time ago studying evolution. Evolution is something that everybody purports today to be a true thing. And I found over the years that every heresy and every bad teaching, every heresy and every bad teaching is going to have some place where somebody forgot to cover the bases. Let me show you an evolution. They go down there digging around there, you know, and they'll find pieces of teeth, pieces of this, and they'll say, well, man evolved from this, and man evolved from that, and this is man back there. They'll show you pictures, you know, where he's humped over like a caveman, and any of this and that and like that. And then suddenly, man's walking up here like a 20th century, you know, guy, and they come down, and let, when they lay all this thing out, they have something that they call the missing link. And that missing link has never been found, and that missing link has never been proven. And without that missing link, evolution in your life and my life just goes out the window. You know what they can't find? They can't find any evidence that man down here had legs like a tree stump and then suddenly the next fossil they find, he's got two normal legs. They talk about it, but they can't find any evidence of it, so they call that the missing link. How did man jump from a, a monkey and make the leap to he's human? Where is any evidence between that jump and this landing where anything changed? I mean, you find man normal here, monkey-like over here. Why don't we have any many monkey guys in the middle? <laughs> That's called the missing link. You know why it's called a missing link? Because it's missing. And it is the link 
that makes it make any sense. And without the missing link, it all stinks. <laughs> and that's the problem. And everything's got that missing link. Somebody asked me a question the other day about dealing with somebody. Oh, it was Church of Christ. Somebody was asking me the other day about how to deal with a, got a guy at work to dealing with the Church of Christ. It was Mindy. We talking about a guy at work for Church of Christ. And I told, and she said, he was going to talk about baptism for salvation. And I said, you know what? When you want to deal with Church of Christ, always go to the missing link. The missing link is, here is a religion that believes that they are the only true religion on the world, that you can't go to heaven without them, that you've got to get the blood of Christ applied to your sins in a Church of Christ baptistry, in a Church of Christ water system, by a Church of Christ pastor, and everybody else on the face of this planet is damned and doomed and going to hell unless you're a Church of Christ. Pretty strong statement, right? Look at us. We're the only one in the world. You know where you get them? On the missing link. In other words, the bottom line, Church of Christ started in 1830, 1840 by Alexander Campbell, who was a mad Baptist anyhow, left the Baptist church and started his own religion. You want to get, you want to get a Church of Christ? Get them the same way you get an evolutionist. Where was the Church of Christ in 1700? Where were they in 18 or 1600? Where were they in 1500? You know what you got? They say Acts 238 is our verse, and we're over here in 2005, and we're baptized, bup, 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 baptizing. Well, you know what you got? You got a missing link between the book of Acts to 1850, where nobody in the face of the planet ever remotely assembled even looked like what you believe what you believe. You know what I say to them? I take out my checkbook, and I say, I'll tell you what. I'll write you a $100 check for every Church of Christ preacher you can give me. And I'll tell you what, for every one you give me, I'll give you 50 that believe what I believe, and you only got to give me a dollar for each one of them. How about that? You know what? I pull out my checkbook, never have a word. You know why? Because there ain't anybody. I'll give you 100 men that believe what I believe. You couldn't find one person to believe what you believe from 18, before 1840. You know why? Missing link. Missing link. Missing link. And I don't care. Mormons are the same way. Jehovah Witnesses go around knocking on your door. Don't fight with them over whether there's a hell or not. They're going to find that out very quickly. That's not the issue. The issue is, why were there no JW door knockers in the 12th century in Europe? Why do you not have a copy of Ye Old Watcheth Tower that they were passing out in the 16th century? You know why? Because there wasn't any of them around. They didn't start to 1850. Missing link. Now let me show you how this thing works in the church. You go off to Bible college someplace. You go into class and they're going to say, okay, today we're going to teach you the greater points of angiology. We're going to teach you hermeneutics. We're going to teach you studiantology, eschatology. We're going to teach you apologetics. And you know what? You go to school for four or five years, drop $30,000 a year, and when you come out, you come out talking like nobody in the Bible ever talked. That ever bother you? Ever bother that when Jesus got up, he never said, okay, boys, gather around now, get the 5000 down here after we feed you. I'm going to talk to you about studiantology. I'm going to show you about hemorrhoid nudics. You know, one time, years ago, I got to be careful while I tell this. You know, when you go off to a place where these professionals teach you, you're being taught about how to build a church by a guy who never built one. Years ago, I had a doctor friend of mine. He was a Christian. I liked the guy who was trying to get started in his business, so I would go to him. And I had a particular problem. I can't tell you what it was because it's embarrassing. <laughs> now, I might as well tell you because all your minds are going off the deep end someplace. 
But I had a problem when I had to go see this guy. I didn't, you know, it was a thing where, you know, it was, a, it was very discomfort when I had a problem, okay? And I'm sitting in his office after the examination. He comes back in and he says, well, he says, uh, here's what we need to do. We need to, we need to, in this very easy procedure, we need to, uh, we need just to cut this out. He says, it's a very easy procedure. And I said, okay, that's fine, Doc. He said, now, here's the only problem. I've never done one of these. But he says, I have the book right here that shows me how to do it. I am not kidding you. Now, this wasn't major surgery like I had to be put under. But it's one of those things you don't want anything to go wrong. You know what I'm saying? And I said, and he says to me, if you hold the book so I can see it. I said, whoa, time out. Hold the book. I'll hold the line, but I ain't holding the book. <laughs> and I said, you know, maybe, maybe that first procedure you said about maybe just getting some medicine and taking it would help me that way, and, and, and that's what I did. Now, I can tell by your voice in this thing that if you went to the doctor and the doctor said you need surgery, but I never did this before, but I got a book here that shows me how to do it, you wouldn't be too comfortable with letting him operate on you. I, I take that your, 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 your tense of this. Well, why would you go let somebody teach you how to pastor a church when you never built a church? Why would you spend $30,000 a year to go to learn like nobody in the Bible ever talked, and when you come out, nobody can understand what you're saying? The answer is because the church has been corrupted from the simplicities in Christ. That's why he never talked about angelology, stodiontology, eschatology, whatever the case. He always put it out in clear everyday terms where everybody could grasp it that if most common man could walk away understanding the great truth of God, that's the way that he did it. And chapter 11 is a great chapter that shows you the wisdom and the understanding of the minister that what has happened today in the church, that if God intended it to be so simple and so basic and so easy, and man has taken it and made it so complex. And the missing link is, how come? How come all these guys come out of these professional colleges talking like nobody in the Bible ever talked? How come? When they come out after learning how to minister, you can't even understand what they're saying. How come when I go to their church, all I get is confused? How come all I get told is, what's wrong with my Bible or what's wrong with me? And nobody ever really shows me what's going on or really teaches me the Bible. How come when I got problems in my wife and family, I can't get in to see anybody because of the fact that they're all too busy? What is the problem? God designed it to be simple. Man designed it to be complex. And that's what's happened and Romans, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is my wisdom and understanding and what the issue is today. And that's why, going back to chapter 1, that's why the minister has to be one with his people in suffering. Then we come to chapter 12. Two chapters left. We'll be done here in a second. Chapter 12, the humility, humility of the minister. You know, we got wrong ideas about humility. We think of somebody who's humble and has humility as a pastor that when you shake his hand going out the door, you, when you shake his hand, it feels like you picked up a dead fish. Or somebody, you know, that's so wimpy he can't even look you in the eyes. Paul was the greatest example I know of in the Bible of, of humility. And humility, by Bible's definition, is the power of God under the Spirit's control. And it gives you the confidence to do what you need to do. It gives you the power to do what you need to do. It gives you the encouragement and the tenacity to overcome whatever you've got to overcome. But the bottom line is you never lose sight of the fact that the only reason you have this power or whatever you've got is because God gave it to you. 
And that's the thing you find here in this chapter in the first six verses. Paul says, talking about himself, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Pick it up in verse I'm at here. Verse 1. It is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory. I will come the visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell, whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such a one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise, and he heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. You know what he's saying? He's talking about himself. And he's talking about the time that Paul got caught up to the third heaven and God gave him the body mystery. And God said, and Paul says through the abundance of revelations, he says there was a danger in that. Because <coughs> Paul was very careful not to have people think that he was more than he was. And so he says in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure because of his experience, the abundance of revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. He said, God took him up and let him see great things and told him those things on a personal level. And we're going to talk about some of that this Thursday night when we get into some of these other areas. But <clears throat> at the same time, God left him have a, a thorn in the flesh that balanced out all that was going on. I remember years ago, I was just a little kid, <clears throat> My mom and I used to sit up late at night. We used to watch, back then it was, we used to start out watching the Jack Parr show, and then we wound up watching the Johnny Carson show in the early days. And one night Johnny Carson had on television the most amazing thing I've, never, I've ever seen, and I still remember to this day, he had a talking dog. And this dog was the most incredible dog I have ever heard in my life. I've never heard anything like it since. As a young kid, I, 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 you know, as soon as that program was over, I got my dog, and my dog was dumb, he couldn't talk. But this dog was incredible. They'd sit down there, and, and he brought him on there, and the guy would ask this dog questions, and it would actually speak back an answer. Now, it wasn't like dumb things like, what's on a tree, and a dog goes, bark. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. It wasn't like, what's on the top of the house, you know, roof. No, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> this dog actually audibly spoke and could coordinate it and talk in limited form, but it was incredible. This guy wound up making millions and billions. Of, in fact, they did a story on him at some point after that. The guy had a big <coughs> house over here, and one of, the, one of the guys was interviewing him, and there's a big house that he'd made billions of dollars off this dog going around the world. This dog could talk. It was incredible. And then he went out into the courtyard, you know, and there was a dog house that looked like the Taj Mahal. And the dog come trotting out, you know, and, and the guy started conversing with the dog, and the guy was just absolutely amazed. And all of a sudden, <coughs> that dog... <coughs> kind of rolled down on the ground and got up and started scratching and kicking his leg, you know, and scratching down on his back with his hind leg, you know, kicking his leg, how they do it. And the guy looked at that guy, the owner, and he said, I can't believe it. He says, you've got a dog that's worth $25 million. You bought this place for everything and all the money in the world. This dog making you millions and millions of dollars. And the talking dog that's worth $100 million got fleas. The owner looked at the guy and he said, yeah, that's so he never forgets he's the dog. Now, I made that story up. <laughs> I never watched that with my mother. I made that story up to illustrate this point. Sometimes God leaves enough fleas on us so we never forget we're dogs. That's why we struggle with some of the things that we have. God never wants you to forget where your roots are. So he leaves some fleas on you sometimes so you never forget you're the dog. 
because the greatest danger in the ministry is success. Thinking that you're more than you are and not realizing as Paul asked God to take this thorn of the flesh away three times and God says, I'm not going to do it because of the, through the abundance of the revelations of what I've done from you, for you, through you, I'm going to leave this on you so you don't become more in your mind than you think you are. Then the last chapter. <clears throat> and this is probably <clears throat> where he brings it all together here. And this last great concept deals with the brokenness of the minister. When you come down through this chapter, you realize and you get to see that Paul <clears throat> has such a burden for people. <clears throat> Paul knows and realizes, as I do and most of you do, that the ministry is people. And let's face it, we as human beings get attached to other human beings, and when people don't do what's right, it can break your heart. Three times here, he says in verse 1, he's come to these people, and some of them just won't get it. And you've got to realize that you and I can't make somebody do what's right. You can do all you can do. You can teach the Bible. You can be their friend. You can go through every suffering event that they have. But at the end of the day, it has to be between them and God. And that's a great hard lesson to learn. That in any building of any church or any ministry, it would be nice if everybody made it. But you know what? You're going to lose some people along the way. I told you earlier on, this church really exists for one reason, that is to lay out truth, the manifestation of truth, and commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's what we're here for. You're going to find that God uses this church to give some people a chance to change their life. Some of them will, some of them won't. Some of them will say they will, and they'll start to, and then the devil will drop in an old girlfriend or an old boyfriend or give them this or give them that, or the old friends will call them up on the phone, and something will happen, whatever the case, and it'll, it'll turn around and go the wrong way. It's a tragic thing, but it's part of the ministry, and you've got to understand it, and you've got to deal with it. You've got to realize at the end of the day, you can't make anybody do what's right. All you can give them, all I can do for you, is give you the most honest shot I can. All I can do for you is to open myself up and say, you know what? I say it almost every week in some form or the other. I tell everybody on the face of this planet that I'll spend an hour a week with you helping you put through the Word of God. You know what? For many of your lives, that is the key that would change your life, but you don't want to do it. Some of you, some of God's people, not necessarily some of you, some of God's people come to the point where 